Well, this morning I am beginning a series entitled A Consideration of Church Membership, the Ordinances, and Children. So let me repeat the title again. It is a consideration of three things that we need to consider together. Uh, Church membership, the ordinances, and children. So this is not just a series on church membership. It's not just a series on the ordinances. But as those things pertain to and relate to and how they should be applied or not applied to children. So again, a consideration of church membership, the ordinances, and children. Now let me begin by saying what this study will not be and what my goals are not. This is not meant to be an exhaustive study on the subjects of church membership or the ordinances. That's not my goal. So I'm not going to, I could spend weeks just speaking about generally or even specifically church membership and the ordinances. But it's not an exhaustive study about that. There are some principles, foundational principles regarding those things, church membership and the ordinances, that must be laid But the goal is not to address these topics and subjects by themselves. Instead, I will be speaking about church membership and the ordinances primarily and to the degree that it lays a foundation or aids in understanding how these things apply to children. So again, the three subjects go together as this series is going to address them, church membership, the ordinances, and children. So let me begin by stating some of the goals that your pastors have for this series. And really today, if you, think, if you thought, oh, I'm ready to dive in uh, to this subject and maybe get some, some burning questions answered, Uh, regarding this subject. Well, today is really an introduction to the series and just some foundational exhortations that I want to give you. So let me begin by stating some of the goals your pastors have for this series. First, the goal of your pastors is to be thoroughly biblical. Thoroughly biblical. Now, let's start with the word biblical and leave out the adjective thoroughly for now. Your pastors desire to be biblical. I know you know that, but it's good to be reminded that this is always the goal of your pastors. We are committed to being biblical in our doctrine and in our practice. The Bible is our sole authority. Our sole authority as elders and your sole authority, the whole church's sole authority, is the Bible and the Bible alone. Scripture alone, sola scriptura, dictates our doctrine and our practice. So our opinions and our preferences are not our authority. What we feel isn't what drives our doctrine and our practices. Saying, well, I just feel like, or I just think, without thorough biblical support is not acceptable 
for your elders. And it should not be acceptable for any believer or for this church. We want to say or ask objectively, what does the Bible say about these things? We want to humbly submit to what Scripture says. So we want to be biblical. But now, I've said that we want to be thoroughly biblical. Why do I say thoroughly biblical? I've added that adjective in order to emphasize the need to be careful about detail. Careful about detail is one definition of the word thorough. We want to be thoroughly biblical. And one reason I've chosen to use the word thoroughly is that sometimes believers can be tempted to deal with the Bible rather superficially rather than with attention to detail. If we're not careful, we can give superficial answers to very important questions about doctrine and the practice of the church. We can simply quote a so-called proof text for our belief or practice or position without really applying careful, good, and sound hermeneutics. So in light of that, let me say at the outset, there is no one verse, nor is there one passage of Scripture that answers all of our questions about church membership, the ordinances, and children. If it were that simple then we just point to it and say, here it is. It's addressed in this verse, and it's very clear. It's explicit, but that's not the case. There is no verse that simply answers the question, at what age should a church baptize a professing believer? Or at what age should a person be admitted into church membership? It's just not there. Period. Should a believer be baptized? Now that's simple. The answer is yes. Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Should believers partake in the Lord's table? The answer is yes. For Jesus said when he instituted the Lord's table, do this in remembrance of me. Luke 22 verse 19. And that is repeated by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 verses 24 and 25 where he, quoting Jesus, says, do this, a command, in remembrance of of me, and then goes on to say, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we can say it's it's rather simple when we ask those kinds of questions. Should a believer be baptized? <clears throat> yes. And we can go to a verse to even say, here's the pretty clear, explicit, inarguable answer to that question. Should a believer partake in the Lord's table? Yes. But when should a believer be baptized? How long after believing the gospel should a person be baptized? Should it be immediate? And by immediate, I mean immediate. That day even. 
Should there be, here's another question, should there be examination of the person's profession of faith by pastors first, since pastors are the ones who administer baptism? And how often should believers partake in the Lord's table? So now we're getting into some more Uh, Some questions that are not quite as simple that you can't necessarily point to one verse that settles it, as I hope to explain. For example, 1 Corinthians 11.25 that I just mentioned says, Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. But how often? Every day? Every Lord's Day? Morning and evening? Every time you gather on the Lord's Day? It just says, as often as you drink it. But it doesn't really answer the question definitively. So, should believers be baptized? Yes. Should believers partake in the Lord's table? Yes. But when? How immediate? How often when it comes to the Lord's table? There is no one verse that simply answers these kinds of questions definitively. And we must be careful not to oversimplify some verses and try to get them to say something that they don't explicitly say. Now, I say all this to emphasize that it takes a careful and thorough examination of the Scriptures, applying proper hermeneutics, that's key, because some of what we'll talk about will be related to hermeneutics and applying that properly to certain books of the Bible, certain passages. So it takes a careful and thorough examination of the Scriptures, applying proper hermeneutics, and looking at a host of related doctrines to come to thoroughly biblical explanations and positions on these matters. So this subject requires proper hermeneutics. That's the science of interpretation, principles of interpretation. It requires a mature understanding of ecclesiology, that is the doctrine of the church, which includes subjects such as church polity, the governance of the church, church leadership, church membership, along with a mature understanding of sacramentology, that is the doctrine of the ordinances, and I would say even an understanding of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. Understanding what is saving faith, what are the necessary components of true saving faith, what must a person understand before they can even believe on Christ, what objectively must they know, and what must they be convinced of about themselves in relationship to that content of the gospel that God has given to us, and what is trusting and resting in Christ, and how do we discern that, because we are as pastors and as believers, called to discern and to judge whether or not a person has believed on the Lord Jesus Christ or not. And now we're talking about even things related. We know that's important in relationship to church discipline. We we have to judge if someone claims to be a believer, but they're not bearing the fruit of that. They're not living according to what they profess. Could it be they're a false convert? So there there are judgments that need to be made. So again, let me repeat. 
This subject requires proper hermeneutics, a mature understanding of ecclesiology, which includes things like church polity, church leadership, church membership, a mature understanding of sacramentology, and a mature understanding even of soteriology. All of these doctrines and verses and passages related to them come together to help us have a thorough biblical position regarding this subject. So let me give you one example briefly. It's an example I'll take up either next week or the week after. The example is the conversion of and baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. Now, we're not going to look at it thoroughly this morning. I just want to give it to you as an example. But Philip is called to go. He to a particular place. There's, God's even speaking to him about where to go. And he comes across an Ethiopian eunuch who's in his chariot. He overhears him reading from Isaiah. And Philip asks him, do you understand what you're reading? How can I understand unless someone explains it to me? So Philip preaches the gospel to him. He explains it to him. The Ethiopian eunuch believes. He says, seeing water... Here's water, what prevents me from being baptized? So he's baptized spontaneously, immediately. And so it will not do, though, to simply say, well, that settles it. It should be immediate. And the Ethiopian eunuch is an example. A legitimate and even necessary question to ask is this. Is this a didactic passage, Acts 8, giving us a mandate... And I'm using the words carefully, a mandate, a command for immediate baptism after believing. I will argue the answer is no. Now, those are hermeneutical principles. We need to understand what is the purpose of the book of Acts, what is described there, why is it described there, what's happening in that particular situation. And is that ordinary and normative or not ordinary and normative? These are hermeneutical principles. For if we're going to argue that simply then we must also argue that baptism must happen the same day one believes. For it did so in that instance, not even on the Lord's day, it, not even waiting for, if you're just going to argue that simply, for others to observe it in the body of Christ. It has to happen that day and rather spontaneously as long as there's water available to do it. And it not only needs to be the same day, but if you're using that passage as didactic teaching, mandates for the practice of baptism in the church, then it must also be the person who evangelized the new believer, who baptizes the new believer, for that's what Philip did. He was the one who proclaimed the gospel to this new believer, the Ethiopian eunuch, and he was the one who immediately baptized him. And we can also argue that no elders need be involved, for Philip was not an elder but an evangelist not an elder of a local church. And therefore, we could argue, if we're going to argue that simply from Acts chapter 8, that elders don't need to be involved at all. However, upon closer examination, there were actually no elders even in existence in Acts 8. That office had not yet been commanded and appointed for the church, for elders in the church are not even mentioned until Acts 11 verse 30. So does that come to bear upon one's understanding of Acts 8? 
For that certainly is not normative in the church today. For there are elders and pastors with didactic passages that speak to us about our responsibilities in the church. And many who argue for immediate uh, baptism from Acts chapter 8 in the Ethiopian eunuch often do not even take into account that the Ethiopian eunuch was not even in Ethiopia. He had traveled to Jerusalem and was now on his way back to Ethiopia. And having believed after Philip personally explained the gospel to him, there wasn't even a local church where this Ethiopian was heading back in order to oversee his baptism and for him to, a church for him to join after believing. This is what you might say, that he, he lived in a missionary frontier setting. Anyway, we look at this account. This was not an ordinary event, but an extraordinary event and situation in the early days of the church on the missionary frontier, we might call it. So this is the gospel spreading where it not yet had been preached, where there was uh, not a church where set in order, a local church with elders where things would take place later in the life of the church and now even ordinarily. So the point is that Acts 8, like much of the book of Acts, is descriptive of what happened but not prescriptive of what the church would practice later and should practice today. So, Get those words in your minds, prescriptive and descriptive. The book of Acts is very much descriptive of what was happening, its narrative, but not necessarily prescriptive, that is a command, a mandate for what must be practiced by the church. So that's a hermeneutical principle that we're going to talk about in uh, a subsequent Time together. So you can see that a casual treatment of Acts 8, a rather simplistic, well, the Ethiopian eunuch was baptized immediately and spontaneously after believing the gospel. It won't do. We need to be thoroughly biblical and apply proper hermeneutics. We need to look at the whole of what God has revealed and not one instance to the neglect of what God has then revealed in didactic teaching passages that speak to the life of the church ordinarily. So let me reiterate, your elders want to be thoroughly biblical. The subject requires it. That is our goal. And we want you to be thoroughly biblical as well. Secondly, the goal of your pastors is to be faithful as those who will give an account to God. We not only want to be thoroughly biblical, but our goal is to be faithful as those, very important phrase, who will give an account to God. Look in your Bibles briefly. 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. The Apostle Peter, in exhorting the elders in churches in various places... 1 Peter 5 verse 1 writes this, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. Here's what he's exhorting them to do. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily. According to the will of God, 
and not for sordid or selfish gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And after saying all that, he says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Your elders want to be faithful in shepherding the flock, not according to our will, not as lording it over to the flock. We want to shepherd according to the will of God, eagerly, as examples, as those who are under the one who is the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a chief shepherd. We're very aware of that. And we will give an account to him. And when he appears, we want to be commended for how we've shepherded the flock. We want to be faithful. Hebrews 13 verse 17 says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. Here's the phrase I want you to focus on. As those who will give an account. Now this weighs heavily upon us as elders. It's very important. So we're not even talking about now the subject of church membership, the ordinances, and as that applies to children and what should we believe and practice regarding these things. It's because there's sometimes we, we just do need to pause and we need to say there's some preliminary things that we all need to be reminded of. And please be reminded, this weighs heavily upon us as pastors. We have a chief shepherd and we'll give an account to God. And this is sobering to us. We don't undertake these things lightly. And this fact that we'll give an account to God compels us to handle the scriptures with care and to shepherd the flock well. And remember, flock of God, your pastors must shepherd according to the dictates of our consciences as they are bound by scripture. We must not as pastors and we cannot acquiesce and comply with the dictates and consciences of others, unless others convince us that our current consciences are not bound by God's word. We all must have our consciences regarding doctrine and practice bound by a thorough, thoroughly biblical and robust examination of the scriptures in this regard. We just want to remind you that, that we don't exist to do the will of man or the will of the people. But as Peter said, the will of God. We have to shepherd according to the will of God. And there are times, if I can just, again, these are introductory comments. I just think it's important to share some of these things. There are times that folks do just want us to do what is the dictate of their consciences rather than our own as pastors. But please be reminded, pastors have consciences and convictions that we must uphold. And it's not good nor safe to violate one's conscience and convictions. So that applies for all of us, but please apply that to us too. As we're seeking to be thoroughly biblical, very careful in how we practice shepherding and that responsibility and the practice of the church, understand that, that we have consciences that are bound by the Word of God and therefore we must shepherd according to our consciences that we believe 
are bound by the Word of God. So please understand that we desire to be faithful to God. We desire to be faithful to His Word, faithful to the office we've been called to. We desire to do God's will as revealed in Scripture as we study it and are convinced of it. And that's what we must all do. And that is why your elders want to teach on this subject. That all of our consciences and convictions will be thoroughly shaped by the Word of God. So, first, the goal of your pastors is to be thoroughly biblical. Thoroughly is very important. Secondly, the goal of your pastors is to be faithful as those who will give an account to God. Thirdly, the goal of your pastors is to be careful as shepherds of souls and to be careful to be protectors of the sheep in the church. Let me repeat that. The goal of your pastors is to be careful as shepherds of souls and to be protectors of the sheep in the church. Matters of church membership, baptism, and the Lord's table are matters of shepherding souls. So please understand that we're not trying to withhold good from God's people. Instead, we're striving to faithfully shepherd the souls given to our care. If we determine that we cannot and should not allow someone into membership, be baptized, or come to the table of the Lord, it's not because we're trying to be difficult or withhold some good from the people of God. Instead, we're trying to be faithful We're trying to be careful as shepherds of souls. We're trying to be protectors of the sheep and of the church. We're trying to do what's good for the church and in many cases what's good, spiritually speaking, for the person himself or herself. And in some cases, well, in all cases, to baptize too soon or hastily or to receive someone into the membership of the body too soon, too hastily, recognizing them as believers too soon or hastily is similar to laying hands on a man seeking to be a pastor too hastily. It doesn't do the person any good, and it surely doesn't do the church good but harm. So let me use another important matter in the life of the church as an example of this. 1 Timothy 5, verse 22. Look at 1 Timothy 5, verse 22. 1 Timothy 5, verse 22. I alluded to this very important matter in the life of the church. Let me explain it and let me use it as an example of the need to be careful, not hasty. And protectors of the sheep in the church. 1 Timothy 5.22, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily, and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. In other words, don't appoint a man to the office of elder too quickly and without proper observation and examination of his character and qualifications. Because one way to protect the integrity of the office of elder and to safeguard the church from unqualified elders whose lives will bring reproach on the name of Christ and His church is to be careful, cautious, methodical, and scriptural in appointing men to the office in the first place from the outset. 
So it says, do not lay hands on anyone too hastily. The word hastily means quickly, swiftly, without delay. Because there are certain things that, that do need to be done quickly. Sometimes there are things we need to do in haste, but there are some things that we should undertake with great care and caution, deliberately, thoughtfully, for to rush something, some things would, would be very reckless. And concerning this particular unwise hastiness that Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 5.22, the result would be that there are men who are elders who should have never been elders. And the consequences are immeasurable and beyond description. The church today is suffering because of men who should have never been set apart as pastors in the first place. Not only today, but even years ago or centuries ago that still have effects on the church today. The name of Christ dishonored, the proclamation of the gospel hindered, the church led astray into sin and false doctrine. Now the laying on of hands was a symbol of identification and approval and appointment. It symbolized the commissioning of the man to that particular task. It conferred the authority of the office. And to do so hastily, without being thorough, and being thoroughly biblical would be dangerous to the body of Christ. So that's one of the areas that pastors need to be careful in as we shepherd souls. And we need to, by being careful and thoroughly biblical and not rush into things, we need to, it therefore protects the body of Christ in various ways. And Paul tells Timothy, do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby. Here's what would happen. He says, Timothy, if you do this, you share responsibility for the sins of others. These are related statements. If you do this, then you're going to do this. If you're too hasty in this, you're going to share responsibility for the sins of others. If you haven't done what's necessary to examine a man by the Scriptures, and yet you appoint him to the office, if he sins, Timothy, you share in that sin. You bear some culpability. So we know this to be true in our laws. If a busing company hires a person to drive a bus without checking to see if he has the license, ability, or qualifications to do so, the company is liable and culpable for that man's incompetence. If a hospital allows a man to perform surgeries without taking time to confirm his credentials, investigate his abilities, then the hospital is liable and culpable. And as serious as those examples would be, it doesn't compare to the negligence which affects the souls of people. So in matters of ecclesiology, in matters of the church, the life of the church, church governance, church polity, the ordinances, I'm concerned that many churches, shepherds and sheep, have been careless. If I may, let me apply this to church membership, baptism, the table of the Lord in general, and to how these things should be practiced as it pertains to children. For this is at least equally important as who is appointed as a pastor, if not more important in some ways. Haste is not appropriate in such weighty matters. Yet sadly, haste and carelessness rule churches in these matters. We do not believe it is 
for the good of the person or a child to baptize someone too hastily, to receive someone as members of the visible church too quickly, and to invite someone to the table of the Lord unwisely and without careful fencing of the table. Jesus told the parable of the sower, or some call it the parable of the soils in which he described two categories of people who seemed to respond positively to the gospel, but were actually false converts. And in explaining the parable, Jesus said this in Matthew 13, beginning in verse 20. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet, he is no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. Now, how does that come to bear out? How do we know that? What, what shows this to be the case? That he just immediately received it with joy, but it was only temporary faith, which was not true saving faith. He says, and when affliction and persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. So that's one category. Here's another. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns. This is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. So for the one, it took affliction. It took persecution because of the word to show that it was a false convert. For the other, it took worry of the world, temptation from the deceitfulness of riches, And wealth to reveal this too was a false convert. So should not care be taken in light of this? Jesus went on to say in Matthew 13, 23, the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word, understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. This fruit was not born overnight. You don't plant a seed and get a hundredfold of, of a crop overnight. So in light of this, should not great care be taken? Haste can be a detriment. So again, we do not believe it's good for a person, just in general, and a child, if we're talking about children, to be baptized hastily. To receive someone as a member of the visible church too quickly. To invite someone to the table of the Lord where there are consequences if they don't partake in a way that is prescribed in Scripture. In the first place, it does great harm to the church if one identifies as a member who's not been thoroughly examined. For there are not many things more harmful to a church than having false converts who are members. And it not only does harm to the church, but it, it also does harm to the soul of the one who is affirmed by pastors and the church as believers through baptism and through being brought into the life of the church hastily without careful testing and examination and observation, only to find that the person made a false profession, was deceived in some way, and then there's a need to publicly communicate that this person has strayed and no longer believes. So one way that pastors guard and protect and are careful in the shepherding of souls in the church is through being watchmen of church membership, those being baptized and those partaking in communion. So please understand, the goal of your pastors is to be careful as shepherds of souls. 
even those who desire to become members and partake in the ordinances, and to be protectors of the sheep in the church. So, to review, here are some of our goals. Your pastors want to be thoroughly biblical. And that's what I'm going to attempt to do as I teach on this subject. We want you to think and be thoroughly biblical as well. The goal of your pastors, please understand, is to be faithful as those who would give an account to God. This, this weighs heavily upon our souls. And, and so we want to be faithful in what God has called us to do. And we want the church to be faithful as well, for we all must give an account to God. And thirdly, the goal of your pastors is to be careful as shepherds of souls, souls and protectors of the sheep in the church. And of course, the overarching goal is the glory of God in His church. And so I plead with you, brothers and sisters, just by way of introduction to this whole subject, always remember these things about your pastors. And we would call the whole church to have the same goals, not only for yourselves, but for your pastors and for us corporately together as a church. Now, let me make some comments and application based on what I've just said thus far. If you forget these things about your pastors, or if you don't have the same goals, or we don't have like-mindedness in these things, then I'm just burying my heart a little bit. Then elders can be treated more like adversaries than friends, enemies than shepherds. And sometimes people forget all the things I've just mentioned and all the intentions and motives of their pastors, and they tend to see pastors as roadblocks in the way of what they believe themselves and what they want. But please remember, we're not roadblocks. We're pastors. Please don't treat your pastors as if we're obstacles to the church glorifying God. And please don't be offended that I'm even sharing this with you. I'm not saying it's true of everyone, obviously. I'm just saying we just often need to be reminded. Don't we need this reminder in marriage sometimes? Husband and wife, conflict arises. Our sin begins to rise up. And we just sometimes need to pause and be reminded, this is my wife. This is my husband. We're both believers who are in this one flesh relationship. Let's make sure we're acting in accordance with that. We're, we're, our goals are the same and should be the same. And and so sometimes we need to be reminded. Sometimes we just need to be reminded of these things in the body of Christ too, as those who are in covenant together through the new covenant. So in light of that, may I ask you to do these things. First, be kind. <laughs> if you disagree with another brother about these things, be kind. If you disagree with what I say, be kind. We're not adversaries. And when you have questions, don't ask them as if we're adversaries. We're fellow believers, brothers in the Lord, shepherds of souls who take our responsibilities seriously. We're not trying to withhold, but be wise. We're not trying to be a hindrance to the church, but faithfully care for the church that it might flourish. Remember, pastors are people too, right? We're not actors, we're real people. Just as Jesus said, treat others in the same way you want them to treat you. May I ask you to apply it to your pastors too. Treat your pastors the same way you would want to be treated. 
Please be kind. That applies to us all. In any doctrinal thing we're trying to hammer out and practice in the church. Secondly, be patient. Be patient. As I said, there's no one verse and one passage that settles the matter on church membership, the ordinances, and how they apply or don't apply to children. There are a number of passages and subjects and doctrines which may seem at first to be unrelated, but are actually of great relevance to this subject matter. And it's going to take time to explain and unfold these things from the Scriptures. So be patient. And don't just want a shortcut by wanting to know, when can I be baptized? At what age? Or when can my child be baptized? Give me an age. Tell me now. Let's get to the crux of the matter. Would you baptize a whatever-year-old? Would you baptize my, say, 10-year-old? Be patient. Let me just say, and and again, I think this is important just to be reminded as we as pastors have sought to shepherd the flock through these things through the years. Don't get fixated on age. Age will come into the discussion, but only as it relates to certain principles of maturity that we'll talk about. If you focus on an age, give me an age, then you're not going to benefit from anything I'm going to say to you. Parents, be patient. If you have a child that you think is ready for baptism, wait. Be patient. Hear what is being taught in this series. Young person, if you're desirous of being baptized and joining the church, we would ask you, wait. Be patient. Hear what is being taught in this series. And so both parent and child should seriously consider what is being explained and taught over time and in the weeks to come and be patient. It will take time. If you miss a week, listen to it online for much will be related to what said the previous week and there'll be principles that will be built one upon another. So be kind, be patient. Thirdly, be humble. Humbly be willing to consider what your elders believe regarding these things. We're not careless regarding these things. Again, we want to be careful. So be humble and teachable. If your mind's already made up, then it's not going to be very profitable for you. Be willing to hear and consider the arguments. And then if you come out on a different side, so to speak, in a different position, at least you've heard and weighed the arguments of someone else. And so be humble. And remember, Again, our relationship to you as pastors has not our love for God, our desire for His glory in the church, the good of the church, the good of souls been tested and evident. So humbly be willing to hear. And then fourthly, I'd simply say, be attentive. Pay close attention. Don't assume that you already know what we believe or the nuances of what we believe. And certainly don't assume you know why we believe it. Listen to the reasons as well as the conclusions. Be attentive and hear not only what we say, but why we say what we say. So, those are some preliminary thoughts, introduction, and we haven't even delved really into the subject matter. So before we stop... I want to just do this. It's going to be a kind of a 
a survey. Informal. So hear me out as I conclude. Let me do this. Now I'm going I'm to ask you a question. And I'm going to ask you to raise your hand if it applies to you. Okay? And I want you to raise it. Now you might have to think about it a minute. So I'll, maybe I'll wait and I'll say raise your hand. Some of them you won't. So here are the questions. Don't raise your hand yet. I'll tell you when. How, how many of you have been baptized? I didn't tell you when. It's just Simon says. <laughs> okay, do it again. Okay, how many of you have been baptized? Okay. I mean, just seriously, raise your hand. Don't raise two, just one. That's the next question. How many of you have been baptized? You can put your hands down. How many of you have been baptized at least two times? Don't be ashamed to raise your hand. Okay, that's a pretty large number. You've been baptized multiple times. How many of you, and some of these are related and maybe similar questions are the same in other words. How many of you were baptized again, at least a second time, because you came to the conclusion that you were not a believer when you were baptized previously? That's, again, obviously this is really a play off the, the previous question. You've been baptized two times, and in most cases that's because you came to the conclusion you were not a believer when you were baptized previously. So let me ask a little more nuanced question. How many of you, don't raise your hands yet, again, immediately after I ask it, think about it. How many of you were baptized as children and then baptized again later? Because you might have been baptized twice as an adult, so this is a little more nuanced. How many of you are baptized as children? Let's just define that just for the sake, again, of defining it, because I know some of you are asking, well... What's the age? 18 and under. Let's just say 18 and under. How many of you were baptized as children and then you were baptized again later? Large number. That's a large number. Okay, another question. How many of you were baptized as children, yet when you were baptized as a child, you did not formally and officially become a member of that church? In other words, you became a member of a church sometime later. Raise your hand. Okay. Now let me make some observations about that briefly as we conclude. Many people have been and still are being baptized before they were actual believers. And I think just the raising of hands, you know, it's not to, to, you know, no shame for anyone in saying these things. These are just facts. There are a large number of people who have been baptized as children who then became convinced later they were, not bab- they were not children when they were baptized. That's detrimental to the church. That's detrimental to the souls of those who were baptized. It also shows the caution and care that needs to be taken in regard to young people, their profession of faith, and not rushing, not rushing to just affirm a profession is necessarily the possession of saving faith. Much of that lays at the feet of pastors who've been careless for all kinds of reasons, haven't been thoroughly biblical, maybe are more concerned, again, this isn't always the case, but there's some more concerned with numbers and statistics rather than souls. 
And so even in our own congregation, now I would, I would say this, I have not baptized anyone twice. Um, so that would not apply to any of you with this church. Now that is not to say that there are not some we baptized who later turned out not to be Christians, adults and not just younger people. And by younger people, I mean 17, 18 year olds. For I have never baptized young children. So it can still happen. We know this is a reality in the scriptures, that there are those who profess to know him, but they don't. Even after thorough examination, they, they can explain the gospel, they seem to have a credible profession of faith, and, and yet they turn out not to be true believers. We know that that happens. Even in Jesus' ministry, the teacher, the prophet, there were false disciples who followed after him, not of any fault of his own. But let it not be because we're being careless. You can see just in the raising of the hands. I wanted to do that visually. And those of you in the front couldn't necessarily see all the hands that are being raised. The people that have been baptized multiple times. And largely, although not exclusively, because they were baptized as children, but then later came to understand they didn't even. I've heard this testimony so many times. I didn't even understand the gospel at that time. So we want to be careful. We want to be careful. This is an important subject because we're not talking about unimportant things. We're talking about those we affirm as believers, those who partake in the ordinances of the Lord Jesus Christ, and those who are identified as members of the visible church. And therefore, you can see there is a need for a consideration of church membership in the ordinances as it pertains specifically to children. We'll undertake that in the weeks to come, God willing. Let's pray together. Father, we need wisdom. We need to be careful. We need to be students of the Word. We need to be diligent in all these things. And we need to be that, not just so that we're, we get it right for the sake of getting it right, but because there are souls that are affected by these things. And there are churches and its witness in the life of the church that's affected our testimony to the world. And these are are weighty matters. Lord, we know that some things we automatically tend to think, yes, these are weighty matters, but unfortunately, among much in the church, ecclesiology and the ordinances and church membership and these kinds of things are are not really dealt with, with the same gravity. Lord, I pray that it wouldn't be the case among us and that it wouldn't be the case so that we are very careful as a body of believers to shepherd souls or to be what you've called us to be, to handle rightly the ordinances of our Lord Jesus and all for your glory and for the good of your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.